Father God, as we approach you now, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth, we ask, Lord, that you would steady our hearts, that if there were any distractions or anything that could be at work in our hearts and our minds that would pull us away from focusing our mind and our heart now on worshiping you, Lord, that you would just remove them. <clears throat> Lord, tune our hearts in, to the frequency that is your name. Lord, incline our hearts to you, not to any selfish gain or false motives. Open our eyes now, Lord, that we would see your wondrous glory in your wondrous word. Father, as a church, I pray that you would even now, by your spirit, be uniting our hearts to fear your name. And as we look at these passages of scripture, Lord, that you would satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast, unfailing love. Lord, lead us into all truth, and may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so if you would, we're going to be continuing in our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, so if you would open up to Colossians chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be specifically today uh, just camping out in one verse. Now, as I've mentioned already, uh, today's Reformation Sunday. And for some of you, you may know what Reformation Sunday means. You may know about the Reformation. But some of you may not be familiar with the Reformation. So let me just give a little bit of backstory. Um, on October 31st in the year 1517, Martin Luther, uh, who was a monk, nailed something called the 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany. And, you know, we tend to think that that was this, this like call to arms. Uh, but that would have been the same thing as putting an announcement or a posting. They didn't have email, social media, um, Martin Luther was really seeking to start a conversation and the focus of the 95 theses was, uh, the issue of indulgences within the Roman Catholic church and what indulgences were, it was the practice of the Roman Catholic church, accepting payments in, in part or in whole. And those payments would help purchase the forgiveness of sins for some that had passed. Um, now, this wasn't the only issue of the Reformation, but you can say this is what kind of lit the wick, um, and the whole Reformation came out of that. So a bunch of other issues arose against the Roman Catholic Church during that time, and uh, it wasn't just Martin Luther, great men of God that he used during that time, William Tyndale, John Calvin, John Knox, and others um, came out of that. Um, but what was important from the Reformation standpoint is that there was a a recommitment, a rediscovering, you can say, of the word of God and the authority of the church. And what came out of that was that the authority of the church was not Rome, was not the papacy, but it was God himself. God is the authority of the church and his word governs the church. And so you might have heard some of these phrases. There were five core truths of the Reformation. The first was called sola scriptura, which meant scripture alone. And what that was saying was that the highest authority and the sole source of divine revelation was God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. 
Um, and this was in response to the Roman Catholic Church because they believed that tradition was on equal footing of authority as God's word. Um, they believed also that in the, in the matters of faith and practice that the, the Roman Catholic church leaders, church officials, had the final authority. So it wasn't God's word that had final authority, but the Pope could have final authority. The second cry of the Reformation was one called sola gratia, which means by grace alone, talking about salvation was by God's grace alone. It was, it's 100% God's undeserved favor toward us. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It's been made available to all simply through the finished work of Christ. The next would have been sola fide, which means by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. What that's telling us is that the only way a human being, a sinner, could ever be made right with God, to be forgiven and justified by God, is by faith, by faith in Christ. There is no other way. Uh, this was a huge debate during that time because the Roman Catholic Church believed that justification was by faith, but not by faith alone, faith and good works. But faith has to have an object. And so the next part of the Reformation was something called solus Christus, which meant in Christ alone. So we start putting these together and we see by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, because Christ is the object of our faith. Faith on its own doesn't save anybody. It's the object of your faith that can save. And so there is no other person, mechanism, or anything in all of human creation that an individual can be made right with God other than through Christ. It is through his substitutionary death and his resurrection. And then the final cry of the Reformation was soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Means that Everything that's done is for God's glory. We may get the good, but God gets the glory. So why do I share all that? Not simply because it's Reformation Sunday, but because it ties in beautifully, actually, with the verse that we're going to be looking at today. During the Reformation, there was an issue of who ran the church, who was the authority. And today we're going to look at Colossians 1.18, and we're going to see that it is Christ and Christ alone who is the head of the church, the Pope isn't the head of the church. Pastors aren't, and elders aren't the head of the church. Christ and Christ alone. Now, we've been working through um, exp expositionally through Colossians. And just as a kind of a, just to leave you a heads up, as we work through verse 18, we're going to be unpacking a doctrine called the headship of Christ. So I probably would suggest you don't try to turn to all the references, just write them down um, because we're going to be looking quite a few, but it's important because we really have to understand whose church this is. Let me read verse 18 for us. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, traditionally, I would have included verse 18 in last week's message because it flows from it. But I wanted to make sure we took a week to really understand the authority of Christ over the church, especially because we are a new church. 
And as a new church, I want to make sure that all of us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is Christ's church. This church belongs to him. Jesus Christ alone is the great pastor and shepherd of every church. Any other pastor or elder is simply a steward of the ministry that God has given him. And so we're going to kind of camp out here this morning. Um, and if you don't catch all the references, that's totally fine. Um, I will be more than happy to send these notes out uh, because I think this is an important thing for us to realize. Um, <clears throat> the church belongs to Christ. And so that's our first point is that Christ rules the church. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. Now, when we read that word head, it's talking about a human body, yes. But it's important to understand what is being conveyed, what's trying to be communicated. And what that's saying is that the head on a human body is the position of authority, control, and power. And so when we say that Christ is the head of the church, we are saying that Christ is the authority of the church, that Christ alone is Lord. There isn't, you know, there isn't two heads. There isn't Christ and, you know, pastors, Christ and the Pope. There's one head to one body, and that is Christ and Christ alone. And the reason Christ can be the head of the church, the authority of the church is because the one who was crucified has been raised and is seated at the right hand of God, which is the position of power. Now, if you've read the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians, you would notice that they are strikingly similar because uh, they were written around the same time. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we actually hear this same truth of the headship of Christ over the church echoed. So verse 20 through 23, 20 through 23 says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, which we just saw was the position of power, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're seated here this morning and we're lifting our voices in song. We're praying, we're hearing God's word preached, but it can be really easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is ruling right now. He has a body right now. He is seated at the right hand of the father right now. This is his church, which he died for. By ruling, when I say Christ is ruling, I mean, it is Christ that controls the will of the church. It is Christ who controls what the church should be doing, its actions. And so that should, we should feel some weight of that because that means that we really have to be asking ourselves, are we walking in line in obedience with the one who this church belongs to, whom we belong to? Notice it says here in verse 18 that the church is a body. He is also the head of the body, the church. <clears throat> now, I, I want to make sure before we go any further what we mean by church. I'm not talking about buildings. I'm not talking about attendance sheets. The church is any man, woman, or child 
who has confessed and repented of their sin, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, follows him and has been reconciled to God. That who Jesus is the head of, the authority of. Now, let's ask ourselves, what is the relationship between the human head and the human body? Well, if I was walking, right, I, I, well, I played baseball. And when I was trying to learn how to pitch, if my, if my head was pointed a little bit to the left, guess where the ball would go? A little bit to the left, right? Wherever I was looking is where the ball would go. The head governs, directs the body. The head is also where you, you take food in through, right? We read, we're informed, we're educated, we're sustained. And so when we say that Jesus is the head of the body, what we're saying is it is Jesus who gives life, direction, and purpose to his people in the church. Jesus is the one who gives us life, direction, and purpose. This is extremely important because that means we don't get our directions. We don't get our purpose. We don't get life from, you know, the best-selling books in Christianity for 2021. It doesn't mean that we get our life direction and purpose from podcasts and, and, and all these other. We get it from Christ. Christ is the one who nourishes the body. I'm not saying these other things are bad, but that is not what governs. It is Christ who governs. And so how does Christ govern his church? We see first that Christ governs, rules, exercises authority over his church by his word. By his word. You know, all of us have Bibles. Most of us probably have many Bibles. Some of us have more than others. I have quite a few. <clears throat> and it can get really easy to forget that the Bible is a supernatural thing. You own a supernatural thing in owning a copy of God's word. Because it's not just leather and paper and ink. God truly speaks through his word. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says... For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your Bible is as, acts as if a microphone by which God is speaking through. It is can brightly be said, your, your copy of God's word is the most important physical possession you own. There's nothing more valuable. I don't care how much your house is worth. I don't care how many toys and trinkets you have. I don't care what's in your retirement. I don't care what's in your bank account. If you took all the possessions you own and put them all together, they would not even come close to the value that is a copy of God's word because it is only through the copy of God's word that we can hear the one true God speak to us. It is our most valuable possession. And sadly, we don't treat it that way. Most copies of God's word across this country are collecting dust. And that is so heartbreaking. That is so heartbreaking. 
Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tell us about this word that God in his grace has given us. All scripture is inspired or breathed out by God for training in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. There is nothing that God has called you to that he isn't equipping you for through his word. God is governing your life. Christ as Lord is ruling over your life through his word. And so we can rightly say then that if we are not studying God's word and seeking to submit ourselves under God's word, then we are rebelling against God. We are not allowing Christ to exercise his headship, his authority over us, his church, when we are willfully becoming ignorant of God's word. And so Christ rules by his word, but he also rules by his Holy Spirit. The word of God and the spirit of God work together. Because the spirit of God is the only way which we can understand God's word in a way that truly changes our hearts. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 2, we read, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, exercising authority, says, set apart these men for this work. The Spirit of God has just as much authority as any as the Father or as the Son. Jesus actually said it was better that he would leave so that the Spirit would come, so the Spirit can rule and govern our lives. In John chapter 16, We read this in verses 7 through 11. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, if you were to go down to uh, verse 13, then he says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. God has given us his word and God has given us his Holy Spirit. And so when we come to the word of God and we say, Father, we seek to be faithful children. Lord Jesus, we seek to submit ourselves under your rule and reign. We also should be praying, Holy Spirit, give me eyes to see and a mind to understand and a heart to love the truth that is contained in your word because Christ rules as head over his church by his word and by his spirit. This is extremely important because even today, so many people are looking across the world, believers, 
And we're asking, where is God? Where is God? Why is this happening? Why is Christ allowing this? But honestly, a major answer to that question is that we are in rebellion to God because we are ignorant of his word. And so we're working against his lordship. Christ is Lord. During the Reformation, the people of God could not have a copy of God's word. For the longest time, people could have a copy of God's word in their own language. It was putting the word of God in the people's hands that terrified the Roman Catholic Church because they would lose their man-made power and authority. Because when we take this word and we read it, we get personal access to God and he can shape our lives. Christ seeks to rule our life by his word through his spirit. And he's also done this by giving us leaders in the church, pastors, elders, deacons. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on that point, but I do want to say this. God has given us leaders over the church, but the leaders of the church are not the ultimate leaders of the church. Your pastors and elders are a grace given to you by God and should be submitted to, trusted, and obeyed to the degree that they are faithfully doing what the word of God says. And so you have a responsibility to hold your leaders accountable to the word of God. Just because somebody went to seminary and has a couple letters at the end of their name does not make them somehow closer to God than you. You've been given the same word, the same spirit, and they are to steward the ministry that Christ has given them faithfully. If at any point a pastor, an elder, a deacon seeks to exercise an authority beyond what God has entrusted to them in their word, they are wrong, they are in sin, and they should be held accountable. We saw that was what happened with the Roman Catholic Church. They went beyond the words of Scripture. Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. It's no different than in our land. <clears throat> we have government officials and presidents we elect, and they are a gift from God. We see in Romans 13, to the degree that they uphold righteousness. But they are not the ultimate source of authority in America. The Constitution is. So to the degree that presidents and governors and senators and all those other people uphold the law, the Constitution, they should be submitted to. But when they go beyond that, then they need to be held accountable. And it's the same for the, for the men of God that God has entrusted to lead the church. They are to be submitted to, to the degree that they are in submission to God's word. And so I openly say, like, if, please hold me accountable to God's word. If I were to ever be acting or in a way that isn't in line with scripture, please say, just talk with me and say, how does this line up with what God has made clear in his word? Because it's his church, nobody else's. Now, if we look at verse 18 again, he says, he is also the head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning. So our English sometimes misses uh, what the original language is, because in the original language here in the Greek, sometimes words have multiple meanings. That word is arche. It's talking about the cause of something, the agent of something. And what this is telling us is that Jesus is actually the cause, the agent that brought the church into existence. 
Jesus is not only the head of the church, he's the creator of the church. In Ephesians chapter one, verse four, we read, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, before time began, before the first speck of dust was ever created, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, had chose us to be his people, to be his body, to be his church. And when you think about that, we're sitting here today as blood-bought blood sons and daughters of God, seeking to love him, honor him, obey him, make him known. But before the first speck of dust was created, he had already chosen you to be his church. Now, that is a beautiful thing. But that also should make us pause and say, if Christ did that, then what I should have a responsibility to respond rightly. We should respond rightly. We should seek to be a body that is in submission to the head, of, to the head which is Christ. So I want to outline here some beautiful promises of application on what this all means. This is really important. Because Christ is the head of the church, there are some glorious promises here. The first promise that we see is Christ is head of the church is that because he has the authority, he sets the agenda. Because Christ is the authority of the church, Christ sets the agenda of the church. We don't have to sit here panicking and, and, and strategizing and thinking, what do we need to do as a church? How are we going to reach people? What are we going to do? Christ has already set that agenda. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is ruling he already knows what he desires to do with the church and through the church and for the church. And so we can actually relax a little bit. We don't have to sit here and try to create new schemes. We simply have to take a deep breath and say, I just have to understand God's word. He sets the agenda. Christ as head of the church also means that he loves the church. Hear me, church. Christ loves you. He loves you. One of the hardest, I remember hearing uh, Pastor Paul Washer once say that one of the hardest truths for any believer to reconcile is that God truly loves him as much as this word of God says he does. Think about it. You are loved by Christ with the same quality and quantity of love that he has for God the Father. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ, as head of the church, loves the church, and the church is made up of individuals, meaning he loves each one of you. And because he is the head of the church, and because he loves the church, it also means he cares for the church. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 7, it says, 
sorry, wrong verse. Um, cares for the church. I, I wrote the wrong reference. I'm sorry. I will mail that one out. Um, as the head of the church, he also is the one who keeps the church united and grows the church. If you're, do you ever get tired of hearing about like, how are we going to grow our numbers? How are we going to grow the church? We don't have to worry about that. Colossians chapter two, verse 19, listen to this. And holding fast to the head from whom the entire body is being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth, which is from God. The growth of the church, the growth of God's people comes from Christ. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Christ will grow his church. Christ will grow his people because Christ is the head. Again, thinking back to that imagery, right? Food comes in through the head and nourishes the rest of the body. Christ nourishes us by his word. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. One of the most beautiful things to think of is also because Christ is the head of the church, he prays for the church. Have you ever stopped just to marvel at the fact that Jesus prays for you? Jesus prays for you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Well, therefore, he is able to save those forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ lives. Christ is always praying on your behalf. See, I, I think we don't really reflect on these things because we've Christ has become more of an idea than a person for so many believers. It becomes a way of living, a certain philosophy of life. But no, Christ is the ruling, reigning king. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has a body. He makes intercessions for his people. Christ isn't a philosophy or an ethic. He is a king. And he prays for you because he is the head of the church. When it's late at night and you can't sleep and, and you feel as if life is spinning out of control, the king of glory is interceding on your behalf as head of the church. When you feel alone and no one is there, Christ is praying on your behalf. In John chapter 17, we find Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I want to draw your attention to verses 20 through 26 here. <clears throat> I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning those who are with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I am them and you and me, and that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundations of the world. 
Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you have with, with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Did you catch some of those amazing things there? Christ says that he desires for us to be with him in verse 24. And at the verse 26, the love which the father had for the son, Christ says is in us and that he is in us. That's Jesus praying before he's crucified. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you here today. This is the kind of authority over the church that we have. We don't have one who just wields a rod of authority cruelly. No, the authority of the church is King Jesus who is praying for his people. He prayed 2,000 years ago and he intercedes for us on our behalf daily. Christ is the head of the church. Not only does he pray for the church, he is sanctifying the church. He is making you more holy. He is removing sin from your life. He is increasing your thirst for righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. That he may present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. <clears throat> you know, messages like this by some can be thought of as boring. Where's the application? Where's the five steps to what I need to do this week? Right? That's how we're conditioned to think. But is there anything more glorious than to think of the fact that Jesus is praying on our behalf? And now we're hearing here that Jesus, King Jesus, the risen Savior, is actively at work in our lives by his word and by his spirit to be able to present us before the throne of God with no spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. That is exciting, beautiful news if you hate sin and love righteousness. But if you have not ever seen your sin truly and seen sin for what it is, then no, that is not good news. You won't really care. But for those of us who have seen the beauty and glory of God and understand sin, the fact that Christ as head of the church is doing this, man, that should cause our hearts to be exploding. I can't wait until the day that I can shed this body of sin and be free from it. I can't wait to the day where my mind is perfectly sanctified and I don't have corrupt, sinful thoughts, corrupt, sinful desires. And Christ, as the head of the church, is actively doing that right now. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. He also protects the church. Christ, as the head of the church, is the protector of the church. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I also say to you, Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. Hell will never be able to overtake the church, the people of God, because Christ stands before us 
as protector. He is the Lion of Judah. He will crush the head of the serpent. He protects the church. And that's so important for us to recognize that Christ is that head church is the protector of the church. Because right now it feels like the church is vulnerable, weak, wounded, under attack. Not just in America, but around the world. What is going on? Believers in Afghanistan being killed. China not allowing Bible apps to be accessible to their their citizens. North Korea, we have no idea, but Bibles have to be airdropped in there. Australia, Canada, worship services being shut down. It can make us feel as if the church is going to be put out, the light's going to go out. But we are told that Christ protects the church, that the gates of hell should not prevail against it because he is the head of the church and he is the all-powerful God. So how do we respond when we think of all these promises? Our first response is to love God. We are to love him. Matthew chapter 22 Verses 37 and 38 say, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. You're to love God. But that love for God will specifically be also be shown itself in love for Christ. Because here's the thing. There's lots of people who talk about God in a general sense. But do you love Jesus? Do you love Christ? John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, he's talking to the religious here, the lead of Israel. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. for For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. If you love God, you will love Jesus. You will love Jesus. You will love Jesus for who he is, not simply what he's done for you. And if you love somebody, you're constantly spending time with them. You're getting to know them, right? You tell other people about them. So do we love him? Do we love Christ? And this obedience produces something in our life. And that something is obedience. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love the Christ, who is the head of the church, who is ruling with such graciousness and love toward us, then we will love him and obey him. Now, here's the thing, though, again, right? We saw that Christ is ruling his church by his word and by his spirit, but you can't obey the will of God if you don't know the word of God. And so again, we have to submit ourselves to the word of God so that we can love him rightly and obey him rightly. That is how we honor the head of the church, Christ. One of the other ways we show our, our how we respond to Jesus's headship over the church is by depending on him. So let me ask you, 
you have a, hopefully you guys have a, a time in the word. You're doing your Bible reading. Hopefully you have some regularity of a prayer life. But did you realize you can do those things without ever really depending on Christ? It can just be an exercise. Do you actively daily depend upon Jesus to guide your thoughts, to guide your actions, to guide your desires? Do you recognize that if you're not depending upon Jesus, there is nothing we can do that truly honors him. Whatever is not from faith is sin. John 15, five, I'm the vine You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think it's great if you come to church weekly. I think it's great if you have a regular time in the word, you journal, you memorize scripture, you're in a Bible study, you do good works that were prepared for you beforehand, Ephesians 2.10 in the community. But if you are doing all those things without a dependence upon Christ, It profits nothing. One of the, I mean, here's the reality. We are far weaker than we've ever realized. You're far weaker than you've ever realized. My ability to even understand the word of God in a way that might bring about true change in my life is 100% by the grace of God. It isn't anything within me. It's a complete dependence upon him. So we must depend upon Christ. Because Christ is the head of the church. Now I'll briefly touch on the rest of this verse. But I really wanted to spend the most of our time there. Because it's important for us to realize that, especially as a young church, that Christ rules over it and we must love, obey, and depend upon him. It says here in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. That's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He rose. Jesus really died and Jesus really rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, he was the firstborn from the dead. You know, I, I, Vody Bauckham, Pastor Vody Bauckham's often said, well, what about Lazarus, right? Lazarus was resurrected. Yeah, but he died again. <clears throat> Jesus rose to never die. All those who were risen from the dead in the Old Testament and in the New had to die again. They had to go through that thing again, which seems kind of cruel. But Christ rose never to die again. He is the firstborn from the dead. And we saw how firstborn also talks about the authority and position last week. It is because Jesus rose powerfully that he can rule and reign. Do you realize in Jesus' resurrection, being the firstborn from the dead, he has put death to death. He's put death to death. And so what we're seeing here, last week we saw in verse 15 that he was the firstborn over all creation. Now we're seeing here he's the firstborn from the dead. What this is showing is that Christ, this incomparable Christ, is cosmically overall, and he's also uniquely overall within the church. 
Listen to these words from Revelation chapter one, verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now we talk about, I'm, we talk a lot about the great commission in, in making disciples here. And it's amazing when you talk about the great commission, most people usually start with go therefore and make disciples at verse 19. But that's actually wrong. We need to start at verse 18 when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples. See, Jesus, as he rose from the dead, now exercises a level of authority overall that cannot be matched. And we uniquely, as those who have put our faith in Christ, have a unique hope that the rest of the world doesn't. While he is Lord over all, he is not all are united to the firstborn of the dead. This is talking that he is the first fruits, that those who are with Christ will also be raised with him. It's interesting, the older I get, the more I think about death. Um, Jonathan Edwards, which I often mention, he made it his, one, of his, one of his resolutions at a young age to think on death often and the events that come thereafter. And so it's kind of a morbid thing, but it's important for us to realize we're all gonna die at some point. Young, old, I don't know, peacefully in pain. But if you are in Christ, if by faith you are united to the firstborn from the dead, then death will not have the final word. You too will be raised into newness of life with Christ Jesus. I think it's hard to really grasp that when you're young. I think the older I get, the more I realize just how powerful of a claim that is. Um, but believer, if you're here today, you will die, but you will be raised to newness of life. Death will not have the final word because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. There's so much more to be said here, but he ends by saying so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It means that Jesus has to be preeminent. Jesus has to have the first place in the rank above all else. There is nothing that should rival the position of Christ. Christ is, by virtue, by who he is, the most glorious, most important one. And so he must have, as it says in verse 18 here, first place in everything. Philippians 2.11 tells us that at the resurrection of Christ, he was given a name above all names. There was a unique and remarkable thing that happened at the resurrection. He was given authority and power over creation in a very new way. Verse 18 again, first place in everything. And everything means everything. In English, in Greek, in Hebrew, it means everything. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so ask yourself as we close here, does Christ have, is Christ over everything in your life? Does he have first place in everything in your life? First place in your relationships, in your jobs, in your academics, in, in your thoughts when you have downtime, in your goals, in your priorities, in your hopes, in your dreams. He has no rivals. He must hold first place. He is the head of the church. He is our authority. Because he's authority, we need to put him in the position of authority in every aspect of who we are. Everything we think, say, do, and desire. So let me read the verse one time and then we'll close in prayer. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and we thank you, Lord, for the great privilege it is to be united, to be the body of Christ. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the head over the body, Lord. We thank you that you exercise rule and reign and authority over your church. We thank you that you set the agenda, that you pray for us, that you care for us, that you protect us, that you do all things for your glory and your namesake. Father, I specifically pray here and now for our church, the Outpost Bible Church, Lord, that you will exercise your headship, your authority, always. I pray, Lord, that you would guard us against anyone or anything seeking to take that role. Father, work in our hearts that we may delight and rejoice in the headship of Christ. Make that a source of worship and delight. Remove from us any rebellious spirit or autonomy that seeks to work against your headship, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, govern our lives by the word of God and the spirit of God. Let us not be rebellious parts of the body, but let us work in unity and harmony in our submission to you, Lord Jesus. Today, Lord, we thank you. Even as we remember the Reformation, the church, that we are not a church governed by fallen men, sinful men with sinful agendas. We're all corrupt. But that you are ruling and reigning over the church. That you've given us your perfect word, your sufficient word. That you've given us your Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can faithfully be the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.